Hello and welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Mark Hopwood. With us today is Robert Richards, Mars Fishbein Professor of the History of Science and Medicine and Professor in the Departments of Philosophy, History, Psychology, and in the Committee on Conceptual and Historical Studies of Science at the University of Chicago. He is also Director of the Fishbein Center for the History of Science and Medicine at the University of Chicago. And he is here to talk with us about evolutionary ethics. Robert Richards, welcome. Well, thanks very much. Happy to talk about evolutionary ethics. So you've pushed the idea recently that the tendency to behave altruistically is something that we humans have evolved as a species. So maybe we could just begin by talking about what altruism is. Well, I think there are a couple of different understandings of altruism, but fundamentally, as it's used in biology, and I think as we would use it more commonly, it's acting for the benefit of another at some cost to self. So that would constitute altruism. There are things like reciprocal altruism, in which uh, you act for the benefit of another with the expectation that they are going to reciprocate and help you out in some fashion. So that would be another kind of altruism. So one might distinguish, for want of a better term, pure altruism, in which there is no expectation of return, from reciprocal altruism, when there is expectation of return. Would you say that these are both kinds of behavior that the human species has evolved? Or? Well, I think that, you know, from a biological point of view, you can look to other animals, and we have to think of ourselves as animals having been evolved in the way that other animals have, with, however, distinctive traits that we manifest and they don't. But other animals will act for the benefit, for example, of their kin. So a mother bird sitting on the nest will, if there's a predator in the neighborhood, perhaps move off the nest and feign a broken wing in order to lure the predator away from the nest. Now, she's acting at some peril to herself, so it's a cost that she is undergoing in order to benefit her offspring. And we think of that as a benefiting of kin. From a genetic point of view, one might say that what's going on, and this is the way some contemporary biologists would talk about it, is that we have a genetic disposition to, as it were, protect the same genes that are manifest in our kin. And therefore, that's what the mother bird is doing, that she's, she shares the kinds of genes that would lead her kin actually to act in the, in the same way. But the consequence of such behavior, the cost of such behavior is less than the benefit derived to her, we would put it um, genetically, her genome, but it's simply the, her set of genes. So she's, there's a certain sense in which she is protecting her set of genes. Now, of course, this does not at all enter into the bird's consciousness. They have bird brains, after all. The bird case is an interesting one where it seems like there's already something that we could describe as altruism going on in, in the case of an animal that's evolved that way. But as you've already alluded to, human beings are going to look a lot more complex than right. that. And in one way, if they behave altruistically at all, it seems like they do so often without regard to kin or who might happen to share their genes. So it seems like the kind of altruism we associate with human beings goes much further than that that we'd associate with birds. Uh, I think that's absolutely so, but we should think about kin first. So why isn't it the case that the mother who has produced offspring, a, a human mother that is, 
uh, when the baby has been crying all night, she just doesn't take the little young one and toss it out the window, except in pathological cases, we believe. But she doesn't do it because she's willing to bear that cost in order to benefit the baby by taking care of the baby and so on. That's something that you find in unrelated adults as well. Most of us, when we see little babies, we sort of go gaga and we talk really stupidly to them. But you would go out of your way to protect a young child. And so the question is, why? Well, if we have evolved in a certain way to treat our own offspring that way, Now, there are two possibilities here. One is that uh, we have simply seen that one baby is like another baby, and therefore we make a kind of intellectual assumption that they're not different. We may have the urge to protect our own, and we probably do that uh, much more strongly than we would protect a completely unknown child, but there is a gradient, and presumably most of us, and that's an empirical question, but most of us would go out of our way to protect a young child. And that seems to be something nobody teaches you to do that, something that we have just a psychological disposition to do right off the bat. And you can think about it as a kind of maybe a conscious generalization from our own reaction to what might be our own offspring or an unconscious generalization. But it seems to be a fairly well-grounded fact, and I think few people would dispute that, that we're willing to act for the benefit of another, even at some cost to self. Although The cost to self has to be lower when it's not one's offspring than it is one's offspring. When it's one's offspring, uh, you're willing perhaps to run into a burning building to save such a child. But these things need explanation, and evolutionary theory provides such explanation. So it seems like the kind of explanations that evolutionary theory provides have been incredibly successful in all kinds of animal cases. We have really compelling accounts of the behavior of birds. We can explain things that we could understand before through evolutionary theory. But might you not wonder whether in human beings there's this added complexity that has to do with, as you've suggested, consciousness, the fact that we have ideas about all these things. And specifically, we have reasons for acting. We give ourselves reasons, we give reasons to others. And you might think that our reasons could come apart from the explanation for what we're doing. So we might step back and look at a human being and say, wow, our explanation for them acting in this way is that they evolve like this, that it has something to do with their genes. But that might be very different from the reasons for which they're acting. Does that present a kind of complication to the the view that you're putting forward? Well, I think it does. Um, Let me just give you a, a couple of scenarios Because I think in practice, we see a kind of disjunction often between what might be thought of as psychological urges and what our reason might dictate. So if you're a Kantian, you might think that the way that you have to choose your maxims about how to behave is that those maxims have to conform to the categorical imperative. The categorical imperative, as every philosopher knows, has a couple of different versions in Kant. There are a couple of different versions of it. But one of them is act so as you can wish the maximum of your action become a universal law. That's one version. But probably a more intuitively obvious one is act so as you treat another as a member of the community uh, of which you are a member. Now, Kant doesn't say anything about treat another if that other is really related to you in a way that you're you have a a higher prejudice in favor of that person. 
But all members of the community, one assumes from the Kantian point of view, ought to be treated equally. So think about walking down the street and you see there's a fire in a building and you look up and you see it's your daughter who's up in that building screaming for help. I think immediately people rush into such a building and would try to save their daughter, their kin. There's probably a kind of differential reaction if the person you look up in in the burning building hanging out the window is your cousin. Well, you probably will do what you can to save that your cousin. You'll maybe more tentatively run into the building. But now let's assume that it's your neighbor or it's a perfect stranger. And I think we would have a graded reaction to that. And nobody would accuse you, I think, of being unresponsively immoral if, for example, you saw it was a perfect stranger up there, the building is burning, and you dial 911 for of the fire department. There doesn't seem to be a good moral case for uh, you thinking that somehow you're deficient if you don't run into it. But if it were your daughter up there, under the same circumstances, I think people, first of all, would believe you were morally deficient if you just sat there and waited for the fire engines to arrive. If you're a Kantian, these cases ought to be pretty comparable, and reason should tell you that they ought to be treated exactly the same. But individuals, I'm sure, would not treat them the same, either the person acting or the others making a judgment about the person acting. So I think in those cases, we see that there's we have inclinations that somehow are disjoined from what any kind of ethical, rational analysis, strictly speaking, uh, might conclude to. So maybe one moral you could draw from that story is that since the altruism effect seems to be accentuated, the closer somebody is to you as kin, that seems to be evidence in favor of that. The tendency towards altruism comes from a desire to protect your own, as you put it, genome, your own, right. uh, you know, your own family. Right. Yeah. No, I think that I think most evolutionary biologists would say that that's the foundation for anything that we're going to call altruistic response. Earlier on, you mentioned that we have a, a sort of a natural tendency to want to help, for example, suffering infants. Isn't that sort of instinctive reaction to try to help a baby something that an adult would have? And in turn, doesn't that suggest that maybe it's something that's learned? And sort of here, I'm thinking of maybe the you know the behavior of children and that children have to be, for example, taught to share their candy with one another. So, I mean, aren't there just as many reasons to think that we're um, born with a tendency towards something other than self-sacrifice to help others? Well, if you're asking, is there a learning component in all this? I think there, are, there is a learning component, and you might see it in a couple of different ways. One of them is, if we just take the model of language, I think it's pretty well established that If we started out with a blank slate, I mean, if we were really just uh, John Locke, uh, all of us, that we, we have a blank slate and we have to learn everything completely anew, it would be pretty miraculous if we could learn a language. And as you well know, children seem to do it with a huge amount of facility. So we, I think, can understand, again, from an evolutionary point of view, why it's beneficial that we communicate with one another with a great deal of rapidity, and we have these abilities, and we, and we learn a language really quite rapidly, so that there seems to have been evolutionary selection for the learning of language. Now, you could think about the learning of language quite in a similar fashion to, as it were, um, learning ethical behavior, that we have a disposition to learn ethical behavior, but we have to learn, among other things, 
are recognized, among other things. Who are our kin? Well, I mean, sometimes uh, it's not so obvious who our kin are. There's a, a way in which evolution has sort of handled this, namely, your kin are those whom you grow up with. That's a rough and ready measure of who you're related to. But we can also learn. Brothers and sisters who have been separated for a long time sometimes come together again. And once you know that's my sister or that's my brother, that changes the ways in which you react to them, I think, in a rather much more spontaneous fashion. So you can look upon sort of the ethical situation as comparable to the language situation in which there's a kind of ethical grammar But we might have to learn the semantics of that grammar and maybe how to apply the rules. We have to learn what benefits another. You know, if you have a little baby and you take the baby to a doctor, the doctor is going to be like, uh, you might think if you were completely untutored, uh, that this doctor is harming the child by sticking it with needles. But of course, we learn that that's really of great benefit to the child. So there are things, there's a a fair amount of learning that goes into any of our ethical responses. And anything that you're going to call innate or innate dispositions presumably have a learning component as well. So uh, this is, I think, quite a regular phenomenon uh, in evolutionary explanations as you think that there's an empirical part of it and there's, as it were, an innate part and that sometimes they're really, really quite intimately intertwined. And I think it's the same with ethical behavior. But children at a very young age know that you ought to share, for example. Their parents tell them they ought to share, but you, know, you don't have to hit Junior on the head 25 times before he learns that lesson. It comes really quite uh, naturally to children. They, and you can see a developmental process in children, which is, seems to be partly a learning process, but partly not a learning process. Uh, we have a language yeah. instinct. I think that's one yeah. of the ways in which it might be put. We have a language instinct, but you know, it's an empirical question which language we learn, whether it's French, German, English, whatever it happens to be. And of course, uh, language is introduced in a much more gradual kind of fashion for children, but they pick it up remarkably quickly, much more than adults do, so that there's a kind of facility that children at a certain age, I hate to say it, just like ducks, learn certain behaviors. Ducks learn to follow something that looks like a mother duck in a critical period. It's called imprinting. Well, there's a kind of imprinting period for language in which it's much more easy to learn, for example, without an accent. So kids who are brought up in, say, a bilingual house uh, will speak either French and English or German and French, whatever it happens to be, without accents in those particular languages. Someone who's older, the accent seems to go with the learning of the language. Right. So the fact that every human being who was raised among other human beings speaks some language seems to suggest that there's a language faculty that's right. common to other right. people with the same And a critical makeup. period, too. We know of cases where children are prevented from hearing language. So, you know, they live in a closet. They're prevented from doing that. After about a certain age, 12, 13, or 14, it's really very difficult for them to gain any facility, even in what is their native language. And then you want to suggest that the same thing is true for ethics, that we have exactly. an ethical faculty. Right. And even though just as different people in different countries speak different languages, maybe different people in different cultures live according to different ethical systems, there's still this faculty within us that allows us to pick these systems but, up. But then one, I think, has to be a little careful because I believe we generally think that people of very diverse cultures have the same basic ethical views. Now, the, the rules may be different 
in a variety of ways. But acting, that is, to help your own kin, for example, seems to be ubiquitous. You find it virtually in all cultures. It's a bit similar to the expression of the emotions. So if you go to um, very different cultures, how you express surprise, anger, joy, happiness, fear, that is, the expressions on your faces are easily read by people from other cultures. That is, the facial expressions seem to be, for a fairly large number of different emotional states, common across cultures. Now, you can explain this in a number of different evolutionary ways, but my presumption is that, at least that's what I'm presuming, uh, that what makes us human beings is that we have, in the most general way, the same kinds of ethical responses under similar conditions. So I guess there's one way that someone could take what you're saying as at least relatively uncontroversial amongst philosophers. So you might say the idea that there seems to be some kind of instinct for ethical responses, just as there's a language instinct. You might think that's fairly uncontroversial. That seems right. You might think further that there are particular kinds of responses, like reacting more strongly to one's daughter being on fire than someone else, that are also to be accounted for in a certain way, to be explained by evolution. But then there would be a further claim, and the further claim would be it's not just that evolution explains this kind of capacity and this set of basic responses, but it justifies them. That's a further claim that some philosophers had wanted to make about evolutionary explanations. What do you make of that claim? Is that one that you're sympathetic to? Well, I guess it depends on how one understands justification and what's being justified. That we bring to the understanding of ethical behavior a apparatus, namely evolutionary theory, to understand that behavior, it seems to me that's quite appropriate. And that's one kind, I mean, we justify bringing that apparatus because ethical behavior seems similar to other kinds of behavior for which we give evolutionary accounts, and it seems to do quite a decent job. If the justification is something like, you know, we've evolved to take care of infants, therefore we should take care of infants, that doesn't seem to me to meet the same standards. So what I think I would say is that we have to look at what is our ordinary ways of justifying ethical behavior from a normative standpoint. What evolution does is explain the normative standpoint, but it itself is not a justification for the normative standpoint. It explains it, I mean, it justifies it in the sense of explaining it. But you would probably never um, say, you know, I had to protect myself against this intruder because that's the way we're built and therefore I'm an animal and that's the way I reacted. No, you want to give reasons for your actions in a particular instance. But if you ask, why do you give these kinds of reasons as opposed to another set of reasons? You know, in the analysis of justification, you can only go back so far. And for pretty soon you hit against what are called first principles, which means there are no firster. That's where you start. So when you're trying to justify first principles, whether it's in ethics or any other domain, you have to, as it were, change the discourse to give an account of a whole system of which a first principle is the leading principle of that system. So I think that's what you do in what I guess is a kind of meta-ethical consideration. But no, you wouldn't use evolutionary theory to justify this action or that action. You would say, I'm doing this because that's the right thing to do. And if you ask, well, what do you mean by the right thing to do? Well, it's the 
uh, altruistic thing to do, then you can ask, well, why altruism? I mean, th- these are the kinds of questions you can indeed ask. Okay, so there's some really important distinctions, I think, there. So let, let me see if I've understood it all right. So by a normative standpoint, you mean something like me taking a perspective on a certain thing that I should do it. Yeah. So taking a normative right. standpoint is right. thinking, I should save that person. Right. And what we've said is that such normative standpoints can be explained in evolutionary terms. We right. can say how it is that we come to have those reactions. Right. But you also said that it's not necessarily the case that we want to justify taking that stand on an evolutionary basis. In fact, it would be kind of odd at that stage if if I said to you, you should save that person. And you said, why? And I said, well, because you've evolved to do it. It, That seems wrong. It seems like I'm going to say something like, because it really hurts in there or they're going to get damaged or look, of course you should. I'm going to give you reasons, in other words, ethical reasons. But then you said something interesting, which was that, well, those ethical reasons, we can kind of boil down to general principles. We do that right. all the time. So it's not just in some specific situation, mm. I think it's appropriate to act this way. I think it's generally appropriate to act this way. And then it seems like we can ask further questions about the principles. So as you said, the principle might be one should act altruistically, all things being equal. But then you can ask, why act altruistically right. at all? And at that point, that's the point, if I'm understanding you right, where you're saying evolution does come in and provides a justificatory role at that point. I think one has to stand, uh, understand that in two different ways. So this was a problem that Thomas Henry Huxley ran into. He wrote a very famous, or he gave a very famous lecture called Evolution and Ethics. And in that lecture, he concluded that we had to fight against the cosmic process. So uh, he said, you know, somebody comes up to me and insults me. I have an inclination both to turn the other cheek and an inclination to slug the person. Which should I follow? It seems as though we need a justification for following one impulse rather than another, that we have to fight against our natures. Well, people said, wait a minute. Mr. Huxley, uh, don't you think that we have evolved as animals? What does this fight against your nature mean? I mean, how can you fight against what you are? And Huxley, it's an interesting sort of uh, situation. Huxley, when the lecture was printed, took back what he said in the footnotes to the lecture because he recognized that it seems anomalous to say you have to fight against your nature when who's doing the fighting? It's you. So I think when when you're talking about justifying, let's say, how do you justify altruism? When you say, you know, I ought to act this way because one should act for the benefit of another in circumstances in which the other is suffering and you can do something about it. And you ask, well, why that principle? I mean, what justifies that principle? And I think there are two ways of looking at it. One is to say, well, when I reflect on what I should do, I come to that conclusion. Now, what does it mean to reflect? Well, I think we do this all the time, and this is one of the questions that actually doesn't get answered too frequently in ethical discourse, is when you get to first principles, how do you justify those first principles? We do it in ways that seem to be quite different from ethical discourse. We say, well, look, what if everybody did that? I mean, you know, all of a sudden, you're moving into what looks like a very pragmatic or utilitarian consequentialist 
consideration, even though you might, I don't know, be a Kantian or whatever. Uh, so you have to have a way of thinking about it. Now, one way to think about it is to say, look, we have evolved to be certain kinds of people. We have no choice in this. I mean, in the same way that we have no choice in thinking about the world in causal terms. You know, if you're a Kantian or even if you're not a Kantian, you think, can you think of the world in ways that are non-causal? And it seems you really can't do that, at least conscious right, you can't do it. And why can't you? Well, you might say, you, I can understand why we cannot, because in our deep past, those individuals who thought the saber-toothed tiger in their path uh, would have no causal impact on them, left long lines of extinct ancestors. That is, there would be strong selection for the disposition to think causally. So you might say the same thing. There's a strong selection to think altruistically, and one can imagine, it doesn't take a great deal of imagination, of scenarios early on when human beings were in a more proto-human situation, why acting for the benefit of your group had tremendous survival consequences. So one can give, I think, an extremely plausible evolutionary account of why it is that we all have evolved in a certain way. But that's not something contingent in one sense of contingency. It's not something added. That's who we are. That's what we are. If you're Aristotle, what do you do? I mean, the foundation for Aristotelian ethics is the habits that you have acquired because you are of a certain nature. According to Aristotle, by nature, we are political animals or social animals. According to Darwin, it's the same thing. We, by nature, are social animals. So the ultimate justification is to say, look, that's the kind of people we are. And that's what justifies these principles. In an earlier episode of this program, an interview we did with Chris Halfa, episode 8, I believe it was, Chris Halfa raised a criticism of evolutionary psychology, and the criticism was essentially that evolutionary psychological theories are just very difficult to test empirically as opposed to ordinary evolutionary theories. You know, so for example, if I have a theory about how the tail of some reptile evolved, maybe I, you know, there are methods of verifying it empirically. I can go consult a fossil record or whatever it is that you do. Brains, by contrast, don't fossilize. You know, and that, behavior doesn't right, fossilize. Behavior well. doesn't fossilize either. So do you think that the view that you're putting forth here is vulnerable to that kind of criticism? Or? Well, I think we, you know, in any theoretical domain or any scientific domain, you're going to find within that domain some theories that you think are inadequately justified and some that are more adequately justified. So it would be, I think, a real mistake to simply conclude that evolutionary psychology is a crock uh, because there may be some kinds of theories within that domain that really are unsupportable or for which the evidence is really quite weak or it's theoretically confused. I think there is no doubt that you can, in fact, demonstrate quite well a great number of phenomena that you think fall in within the rubric of evolutionary psychology. So, for example, uh, if you're talking about animals, uh, you can do experiments to show, for example, that stereotype behavior, instinctive behavior, uh, is a heritable phenomenon and controlled by the genes. So, for instance, you can take two kinds of fairly closely related ducks who have different patterns of dances in their mating behavior, and you can hybridize them, and you can find that among the offspring you get some kind of hybrid dance. Nobody teaches the duck how to dance. That's all quite instinctive. But you can see that the patterns of 
expression are a, a blend of what the parents uh, displayed. So that certain kinds of behavior are fairly tightly controlled by the genes, I think, is well-established within the animal kingdom. It's also well-established within the human kingdom as well. As I mentioned before, the expression of the emotions. I mean, we have a a psychological dimension to emotional life. There's a physical dimension, namely, uh, we smile when we're happy, we frown when we're sad, we open our eyes wide when we're surprised, and that seems to be true across cultures. You can do all sorts of empirical work to show that untutored, Uh, One person from one culture can recognize emotional expression similar to their own in another culture. So there are whole areas of evolutionary psychology that seems to me uh, have quite adequate empirical support. We can do developmental studies showing how behavior is often sequential, learning of language. You know, you cannot, the way, the steps in which children learn language is pretty well fixed. That is, they start with very simple nouns used as verbs, then they add noun, verb, and they build up from there. So they don't start off with very complex expressions. Maybe that seems to be intuitively clear, but nonetheless, it could be that children could have learned how to speak really in quite complex grammatical forms early on, but that's not the case. So there are large dimensions of what we think of as falling under the rubric of evolutionary psychology, which seem to be well confirmed not by any fossils, of course, but by empirical study for which evolution seems to be the only reasonable answer. So to go back to what we were discussing earlier, you said something really interesting, which is that when we look at these fundamental ethical principles that we have, principles like that of altruism, when we're looking for a justification, what we really have to say is, well, that's just who we are. And in a sense, you established a kind of commonality between your account and the kind of account that someone like Aristotle Mm. gives on that. It's not that different. But someone might think, well, let's look at who we are. And it seems like the kind of beings that we are are beings that are pretty good at a certain kind of ethical, altruistic behavior within pretty small groups. History seems to show that, right? We do pretty well in small family groups. We do not badly in small communities. Once we get into larger communities, we do terribly. We do awful things to each other. And we do that consistently seems to be part of who we are in a sense. And someone might say, well, look, we've got to recognize it's part of who we are that we act badly to each other when we're acting as part of large groups. But we should want to go beyond who we are in that case. Who we are is, in a sense, not good enough. Our ethical instincts in some way tell us to do more. Is that a kind of view you're going to want to reject? Or is there a way that you can make sense of that on your account? Well, I think we have to remember we are animals, but we are, as Aristotle said, we're rational animals. Let me just give you the account that Darwin gives. So Darwin thinks that our ethical response is based in social instincts of the kind that we've been talking about. But he also recognizes that there's a kind of cultural evolution that goes on. Our both, as it were, intellectual capacities as well as simply sheer cultural knowledge is acquired over long periods of time. So that presumably our state now is rather different culturally and intellectually, that is just brain power, let's say, uh, than it was 150,000 years ago. 
I mean, that's about the time people start recognizing something like modern man, maybe 100,000 years ago or so. So there's a kind of cultural and intellectual evolution that's continued. And what Darwin said is this, that, you know, we have a disposition certainly to act within smaller communities and to act for particularly those smaller communities when they were kin groups. So presumably that was the evolutionary story, that the small groups that we that human beings became human in were kin groups for the most part. And when they got a little bit larger, they split off and formed more kin groups. But they coalesced after time, so you get larger and larger societies. But Darwin's suggestion, and it seems to me it's an extraordinarily reasonable one, that we come to learn that what is it to be a member of my kin group? Well, it's to look like me, for example. It's to act like me. And in certain ways, we perhaps understand why in pre-industrialized, what we think of as aboriginal societies, warfare went on between different tribes, but very frequently those tribes would regard the other tribe as not us, not human, you know, in the ways they would define human. It's something else. So you're perfectly right. It's the other. But what Darwin suggests is that we learn that the differences that separate us one from another, say, are different tribal groups. The differences are superficial. They are literally skin deep. And that while skin and hair and everything else are not insignificant, we come to understand that there really aren't these vast differences. What evolution allows us to do is to see how the spread of the ethical response is a response to the cultural evolution of human beings on the one hand, but it's not perfect, and it doesn't continue. I mean, we, we hope that it continues, but you know, in certain groups, the only way in which you can commit the kinds of crimes I think that you're alluding to is to regard those people against whom you're committing these crimes as not us. They're something else. They're inhuman. They're vermin and therefore we can get rid of them. That demands an explanation too. How is it that the people of Beethoven, of Goethe, committed some of the atrocities they did? It just seems inconceivable to us, except when some members of our group also commit such like atrocities. It would appear that one of the obvious ways in which they're able to do that is somehow to dismiss the groups they're acting against as somehow inhuman, vermin, not us. But if you want an account of that, evolution provides a very reasonable account of how both kinds of behavior can exist. I mean, that is the empirical state. Kant would make us not simply less than the angels, but virtually angelic in our ethical response. And of course, we're not that way. Aristotle probably had a little better understanding of the way human beings actually do act. So I think evolution gives you an account of both situations, and the consummation greatly to be desired is that human cultural development continues on so that the consequence of that, the rational part of rational animal, becomes ever more salient in our behavior. Robert Richards, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. To listen to future episodes of Elucidations, you may consult our website at philosophy.uchicago.edu slash podcasts.